0: we're reaching existential tipping points we've never reached before at a planetary scale while being in a globalized and technologized economy that is founded on an imperative for growth Mm -hmm. that only incentivizes all of the existential hockey sticks to get more steep. So the the meta crisis is really that we're inside a win-lose game that is rapidly becoming all loose. And the AI alignment problem is simply an amplification of an existing alignment problem, which is that civilization is out of alignment.
1: Welcome to Entangled World, where we explore our interrelated existential, social, economic, ecological, and technological challenges their underlying drivers, and how a more beautiful world might emerge. I'm your host, Nadia Shakat Tlapsen. I'm a daughter of Pakistani Muslim immigrants, a mom, and an inter-systems thinker. Join me on a journey to discover what is uniquely and meaningfully ours to do at this pivotal moment in time, in service to the sacredness of life. My guest today is Samantha Sweetwater, an author, Thought leader, ceremonial guide, educator, and executive coach. For over 30 years, Samantha has facilitated individual and group transformational experiences in diverse communities, cultures, and industries on five continents. Her work leading conversations about our relationship with the earth, spirituality, and systems change is transforming the way we think about what it means to be human. Samantha highlights that separation from the Earth that we are nested inside of has been our human predicament, and that the next stage of evolution looks like a conscious reunion that organizes towards a purpose to co harmonize and create abundance for all beings within the biosphere. We also discuss the meta crisis that we're reaching existential tipping points we've never reached before at a planetary scale. Samantha envisions a world 300 years from now where we've managed to co-orchestrate through climate catastrophe through the migration of billions of people through massive cycles of famine and disease a more regenerative way to live in harmony with all of life this was such an uplifting episode i hope you enjoyed the episode if you do please subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app or subscribe to the entangled world pod YouTube channel. Hi, Samantha. It's so nice to be here with you and to talk with you and connect with you again today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
0: You're welcome. It's great to be here.
1: Well, just to begin, I'm wondering if you might share how you might introduce yourself.
0: (laughs) That's always my (laughs) hardest question. (laughs) My name is Samantha Sweetwater. I am a lifelong facilitator and guide of leadership, soul embodiment, and healing. I've been I've been a fairly out-of-the-box creature for my entire life. I was groomed to be a doctor, lawyer, Supreme Court justice, and I <laughs> decided that uh, dance and embodiment was actually a more interesting path to becoming a fully integrated human being and also to developing cultures. And from the age of 13, started locking myself in a wrestling room and making dances about war and peace and love and spiritual states beyond name or form and started inviting other people to join me in that inquiry and 45 years later plus that has taken me on a journey of of community leadership development soul retrieval you could say or soul embodiment which i think of as what it is to truly embody the uniqueness that we are Mm -hmm. we could talk about that a little more it's a very Mm -hmm. different definition than a lot of people are putting forward around soul right now which i think poses a lot of Exquisite opportunities for refinement and how we understand what we are as in consciousness and what we understand we are in embodiment. So, yeah, I'm what I do now is I'm an executive coach and consultant and ceremonial guide. And I work with individuals and groups to organize ourselves towards a life centric culture.
1: Beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you could add a little bit more color to how you've come to do the work you do. I'd love to just dig into a little bit of the journey that you've been on over the years.
0: Sure. Yeah, I would. I think my journey fundamentally is grounded in being a child of the Cold War era. And I would say I was I like to think of I mean, in my earliest memories, I cannot remember a time when I wasn't aware that we could extinct ourselves within my lifetime. And simultaneously, I can't remember a time when I wasn't aware, you could say awake. I think awakening is a very big narrative right now, and I like to treat that very lightly. But I would say I knew from a very young age that I had incarnated with a certain kind of purpose. That I was uniquely myself; that there was a sense of a greater animate intelligence that was in me and in everything, and that was clear to me as a little person. While also holding this clarity that the world we'd constructed as humans was an all fail, an omni fail world. Mm. Like I, that was very clear to me from a very young age both in relationship to geopolitics, which at that time the construct was the Cold War and coming into being a species who could, at the push of a button, annihilate life. But it was also clear to me ecologically that we were reaching ecological tipping points. And I I grew up in a community that was some of my parents' closest friends were early environmentalists. I was I would say steeped in climate science before climate science was a popular thing. Mm -hmm. Very aware of chemical horizons, very aware of the start of dysregulation of our climate. Very aware of species extinction, which are now horizons that have greatly exponentiated since I was born, but which were already deeply... In process in the 70s. And I think those twin realizations shaped my psychology very deeply in many different ways. Like to ask a question, like the question, well, firstly, what does it mean to come home? And from very early, holding very strongly that the the the, the common spiritual answer, which is that we must come home to ourselves was insufficient, that, that yes, that is true. And that has been part of my journey of coming to, of healing and coming home to myself. That has definitely been part of it, but living an insight that home is by definition, a shared thing, Mm -hmm. that the whole, the whole concept of home is that we are here to be home together. Yeah. We're here to be home with our families in our homes. We're here to be home in our eco-fields with all the other beings here. We're here to be home in in a culture that we're co-constructing with other human beings who we feel like we're doing society together. That home is this that has this multiplicity of layers and that insight lived in me from very early And in some ways, that drove me to choose the path I chose, which was rather than going into law or policy, which is what I trained in an undergraduate, or going corporate, which was always, that was always a no-go for me because it was, I already had such a deep critique of kind of the engine of the corporation from a Mm -hmm. very young age. I went into dance and embodiment and community development. And that took me, I've had multiple careers that have all oriented towards dance, spirituality, healing, embodiment, and community. And unpacking that as a life story is complicated because there's been many different iterations of that, both of businesses of art and culture initiatives of founding things that have become the australian contact improv convergence or and also things that co-creating things that have failed because they've been audacious experiments in (laughs) how can we create a better world i worked for all of 2013 for example in ecuador on a nationwide Training program for social entrepreneurs that was this incredibly audacious, beautiful. All the big cities in Ecuador. A training program working with a, an incredible team, international team and Ecuadorian team, and the wrong president. One, yeah. <laughs> but the whole thing failed. We we lost funding. We're not able to be agile enough to reconfigure the training to meet the needs of the universities and the um local entrepreneurs who are coming but that's an example of just the many iterations of what we get to do when we step into when we step out of the box and we say like how do how can I construct a toolbox and offer my gifts and my tool to be genuinely useful to an emergent process
1: yeah I love that because I think it 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 sounds like you've approached life in somewhat of an experimental kind of way. Let's try this and see how this feels and try this and see what works here. And so often, especially in our sort of Western industrialized culture, we get trained into this linear, climb the ladder, climb the upwards linear path and do the next thing and then do the next thing that's supposed to come after that. And I think it's always nice to hear more stories of people who are not doing that because it gives you hope that is actually possible and, and
0: there is a yeah, different way I to would live. Say, I would say it very much. I've lived my life as an experiment. I've also lived it even more primarily in this meditation of what is the calling of my soul and what is the calling of the world, mm-hmm. which is really an archetypal soul purpose meditation. That holds internally the seeds of guidance very richly, but holds that also, so that's the sovereign part, that's the self-listening part, but holds that also in this dialogic dance with what is in greatest service, what is the calling of the world, what is the highest expression of my unique gifts and competencies and my vision in relationship to the greater good. And I think, I mean, I think in spiritual spaces, often these days, what's missing is the greater good. What's missing is the world in that equation of guidance, right? Like to me, there's a kiss, there's an erotic dance that happens between the self and the world. And that, that it is absolutely an experiment because it's an, it's a constant process of Creating what doesn't yet exist, which takes a lot of courage and a certain audacity, and also comes in phases that sometimes is very clear and obvious, and sometimes is very delicate and tender and vulnerable and mm. hard to feel, hard to taste, hard to touch. But that, that archetypal dance, which Jung identified, which Bill Plotkin talks about a lot in all of his writing in Nature and the Human Soul, and is that's the dance, and I think as a facilitator, that's the inquiry. As a facilitator, as a coach, as a ceremonial guide, that's the inquiry. I love to nurture people.
1: Do you think that there are certain people who are born or predispossessed with with that sort of ability to hear those messages from the universe, or is it something, and maybe it's both? But is it something that you can cultivate, like? How can more and more people start to really get out of the thinking brain and tune in to what they're
0: here to uniquely and meaningfully do in this world? I think we are all born. We could zoom out a little bit. I think everyone has a place in what I call the soul ecology. I think one of the big culture plays that I'm interested in playing is recreating, restoring, building mm-hmm building a global culture where everyone is welcomed at birth and invited to uh, entrain with and attune with who we're here to be, what really called us. So on one level, I think that ability is innate, but it has been denatured in most people. Yeah. So it's a radical reclamation. But then in addition to that, I think all souls are oriented differently in terms of how much we are, um, edge pushers or way showers or first responders. And not everyone has that proclivity. I think some of the things that have been very well mapped in terms of social science of there's different tendencies in terms of people being the 0.01% first, first driver. The next level of respondent this is mapped in marketing language. it's mapped in political languages. There's a couple different maps, but they're fairly similar maps that there's <laughs> that there is something there's a tendency there that is also in us as a spectrum of proclivities as a species of people who are naturally first responders, naturally first creators, and people who are much more comfortable being part of an organization or doing things according to a much more defined set of rules. And I don't think that's a problem to hold those two maps over each other and get curious, like what is the natural expression that actually feels really good to a given person is, I think we could come up with a more organic map that's more liberating. To the creativity, the creative spirit. Yeah, that's beautiful.
1: I know that you're working on a book. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? And do you have any?
0: Yeah. Yeah. The book is called True Human Reimagining Ourselves at the End of Our World. It's a narrative about systems change uh, from the inside out, you could say. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Who might we get to be in a world, in a soul centric world, in a world where? Each of us is more fully expressed as the true imprint of our soul, as co-creators with the life principle itself, and which which is universal. There's a narrative in the book. One of the chapters is called "Universal Operating Instructions," which is a recapitulation of a, a very uh, I don't want to say universal, but generally present indigenous narrative that we have what in indigenous terms is called original instruction that we've been we have instructions they and in some of the stories those instructions were given from the stars yeah in in some of those stories they're co-emergent with the landscape and the intelligence of the land and of the other beings we share this earth with both animal beings and plant beings and weather beings and they're co-emergent in the listening and and narrative and i don't want to project this as a pan-aboriginal narrative but it's it's the it's called law and Mm -hmm. law emerges through shared communal process it can't emerge through one person Mm -hmm. where it emerges through shared process over time in relationship to the land so part of the true human narrative is how are we re-attuning attunement is one of the primary practices to the world we occupy in a place that is organized towards a universal human purpose to harmonize the earth project the way i talk about it is there's the human project which is nested inside the earth project and with the, the stage of separation that we've navigated has been a self-defined process of increasing differentiation and separation from the earth that we are nested inside of. And the next stage looked like a, a, a reunion, a conscious reunion that organizes towards a purpose to co-harmonize and create abundance for all beings within. The biosphere that we occupy. There's so many ways to look at it. Part of the experiment of the book is looking at this from multiple angles. So, one angle is imagining oneself as an ancestor from the future. And these are all, so I share these experiences that you can also take on as thought experiments that I've had as experiences in my life. And one is this very palpable experience of being an ancestor from the future. That is, and I think a lot of people have this experience. It's not certainly not unique to me of having an experience of, I seem to have this sense of the future that I come from and that it's a a place where humans live in harmony with each other and they live in harmony with the eco-field and where technology has this more sublime texture that is biocoherent and non-extractive. And that that makes that does make a globalized civilization hum. Another angle that we that I speak from in the book is the angle of a teacher from another planet who I who has come to me in my dreams, true story, to offer a vision of what a humanoid (laughs) humanoid species can experience and know in a post-technological adolescent civilization. So Sophia, her name is Sophia. She's my teacher from another planet. She, <laughs> she's quite lucid in, tra- in traveling across the universe in dreams. This is not mysterious to her people. <laughs> I had the opportunity to walk with her on her planet. So the true human narrative itself actually comes from her from a koan that she offered me, which is the civilizing impulse of true humans is to harmonize the forces of nature. Ah. And there's no with in that sentence, which is very interesting, right? Because the- It's with- implies separation, separation. back, yeah. back into we are of nature and we are here to harmonize the forces of nature. And, and so there's this very deep texture of communion in that embodiment, um, which two of the core practices are, are attunement to attune to oneself, attune to other attune to, to field attune to the listeners who are here, the real practice. We can really do that. Uh, and then communion. So it, which elevates. The subject and subject. As Wendell Berry said, the universe is a communion of subjects, not a collection of objects. Right. So, materialism, Cartesian thought, enlightenment thought says the universe is a collection of objects. You know, that we would define the universe as a clock. Yeah. A linear one. Right. And that, but, but from the perspective of communion, one of the tools is. You would say, oh, no, the universe is the universe. How can I start to commune with what that is and become um, deeply in relation in a way that doesn't impose, but that actually is mutually absorptive and mutually elevating? So those are some things about the book. The book also talks about the healing journey, and it talks about psychedelics as a tool. Uh to open these doorways. And then it talks about the role of imagination and re-grounding imagination in bio-noetic thought, in thought that organizes towards the mind of nature.
1: Wow. So,
0: So it makes an invitation to the power of imagination, but it also says, and human imagination can go anywhere. We can make the universe a clock. We can make the universe a computer. And because of that, we break things. Our thought isn't moored in attunement and communion. We break things and worlds. We need, if we want to build worlds and nourish world, the pattern has to be one of deep intimacy. And the invitation then is to entrain our imagination and our creative capacity and our technological capacity and our economic capacity <laughs> with that 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 texture of what is it to fundamentally nourish and nurture the world
1: yeah i um i'm part of this online group that's working through some of Joanna Macy's work mm-hmm. that reconnects work mm-hmm. and yesterday actually we did this exercise this similar to this what you were speaking of with respect to future ancestor and yeah and it was the sort of imagine yourself 200 years in the future you're a future ancestor there's been some species that have not made it through and some humans have made it through but we have made it through what she calls the great turning Mm -hmm. and we are at the beginning stages of this new world being born. And I just found that to be such a beautiful, powerful exercise in imagination, right? Because I think there's so many, it, it seems to me almost like it's easy or maybe easier for us to often imagine more sort of dystopian or Mad Max futures. And there's books and movies made about that. And it Sells the tickets and whatever makes all the money. And yeah, that's one thing I would love to see more is what are the beautiful imaginations? What are the things that we can see at the other side of the interrelated existential crises that we're facing that is a better world, is a more beautiful world, is a more inclusive world. Is the one that we all actually want to live in, even if we don't maybe know that right now, but in our hearts, we know it and we know it's possible.
0: Right. Yeah. Charles's, Charles Charles Eisenstein's The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Knew is Possible is such a beautiful invocation of that world. And I think one of the paradoxes, and this is a great, this is an exquisite paradox, is that. The only way that world comes into being is one step at a time in emergence. Yeah. And a lot of the people who are nurturing that world are very busy doing the next step at a time, whether that's in the space of regenerative agriculture or one of the main projects I'm involved in right now is working on flipping from a totally polluting Messy extractive packaging supply chain to a net circular end of packaging supply chain, which is a super audacious goal, because that's a lot of material. (laughs) Yes. But that's a place I'm putting a lot of energy right now. And the paradox, there's I'm seeing a lot of talk right now about future. Like the future doesn't exist. All that exists is the present, which is Ultimately, true. The only thing that exists is this moment. But what's interesting to me is that futures exist in our imagination. And the nature of creativity, they don't exist in the material sense of existence. They're not real, but they do exist in the sense that they are these textures that inform our, our day to day emotional reality, and they inform the aim that we allow our creativity to take. And there's kind of a mystery of, it's a time wizard kind of mystery, that if, if you can actually put a coordinate out in the future, you can have it draw you to it. So there's immense value to fleshing out A 300-year-in-the-future vision where the old growth is restoring itself and the watersheds are restoring itself and species are returning to the 50% earth that we have managed to co-orchestrate even through climate catastrophe, even through the migration of billions of people, even through massive cycles of famine and disease. We've managed to claim back the jungles for the, the baboons and the gorillas, and the, that we've learned how to communicate with these species, who were always serving purposes of ecologies of attention and consciousness that we didn't even understand. Yeah, we thought we were the top of the pyramid, but we had no idea how rich the web was of communication that we were actually blocking, that's part of my vision of a future, where there's also a a much deeper sense of the interspecies dance that's going on, the depth of consciousness that is exchanging itself through the Gaiaverse, the Song of the Earth in any given moment, and that we become radically students of that in ways that also transcend and include our indigenous ancestors, because we've done that in now in harmonics with technology that holds that and hums with that. One of the stories in the book, Iboga said to me, in my first series of Iboga journeys, there's a couple stories from that journey, In the book but one of the things iboga said to me it said said, in no uncertain terms technology is a soul sucking exoskeleton on the life force of the planet Does, does iboga know about social media the entire actually there's a longer story there but the ancestors had broken my phone broken my computer they had taken me on a diet from all social media and all technological interactions before that ceremony and leading into it they my phone broke in the middle of the ceremony it turned on started playing buiki music and then broke wow there was a lot going on in that series <laughs> the medicine spent the first half of the first journey defragging my frontal lobe from electron what it perceived as electron poisoning from screens wow One day,
1: Samantha, I'm going to do a psychedelic
0: journey with you. One day. I welcome welcome that. The question, one of the questions in the book, and that I think we all need to ask that is, of course, writ very large right now with the AI alignment problem is a way to ask that question is how could technology become a soul nourishing exoskeleton in, in ennobling the life force of the planet? Yeah, like that's biophilic or bio noetic technology in its deepest sense. Is how can we engage our technol our increasing technological capacity and continue to evolve it to be life and soul nurturing and affirming.
1: Yeah, and that reminds me of an article that you wrote, I think, a few months ago on Medium called. Gaya Dharma, how indigenous wisdom can help us move beyond technological adolescence and orient towards planetary flourishing, which I thought was brilliant. And it's certainly been on my mind with everything that's been in the news lately about AI. And I've been thinking a lot about it from the perspective of being a mother of a five-year-old and really worried about the world he's going to grow up into. And so I actually wonder if and I think a part of this podcast is really exploring who we humans need to become in order to find our way through these global crises and how we do that. And so I'm curious if maybe you would just share a little bit about the article and that and what you wrote and maybe start with what is the AI alignment problem or how you see it and yeah, and how indigenous wisdom can help us make better decisions as AI is at warp speed developing in an emergent way.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's so many questions in your question. I'm sorry, that was a loaded question. You can pick it apart. (laughs) We can start from what is the metacrisis. Yeah, let's do that. And I think, I mean, there's one could offer multiple definitions of the meta crisis, but in a nutshell, we're reaching existential tipping points we've never reached before at a planetary scale while being in a globalized and technologized economy that is founded on an imperative for growth.
1: Mm-hmm
0: that only incentivizes all of the existential hockey sticks to get more steep. So the, the metacrisis is really that we're inside a win-lose game that is rapidly becoming all-lose. And yeah. the AI alignment problem is simply an amplification of an existing alignment problem which is that civilization is out of alignment. Civilization as it currently functions on zero-sum games and on multipolar traps, which we could say a multipolar trap, the simplest way to describe a multipolar trap is that a whale is worth more dead than alive.
1: Mm -hmm, A tree
0: mm -hmm. is worth more as in board feet than it is living, providing all the ecosystem services that it provides. There are many players who are all incentivized then to, to collapse the value of that tree or that whale or that field or that person's time into a smaller, more discrete, valuable, um, transactable amount of revenue, and that is writ into billions and billions of interactions every day. Yeah so and if one person doesn't engage in that
1: behavior, the other person is going to, at a larger scale, and so you get caught in this, well, who's going to do it first, and if I'm trying to benefit myself, then I'm incentivized to do it first, and unless we can collectively not to all, unless we can collectively all decide not to do the thing. Right. Somebody's going to do the thing.: Yeah, right.
0: Unless we can collectively bind it someone's going to do it because you lose if you don't. Exactly. So the AI alignment problem is just an amplification of the misalignment that we already have between each other and nature relative to our economy. And then there's other layers to the AI alignment problem, which is basically easily expressed in terms of the paperclip maximizer narrative that AI is oriented towards very narrow goals. It's actually almost impossible. No one has yet figured out, the best of the best minds have not yet figured out how to orient the goal setting of AI towards a life considerate, omni-considerate, life-affirming goal set that would function like evolution. Because AI always works on refined goals. So no matter what you do, it will focus on that goal. And the kind of paperclip maximizer story is that once you give it, if if the goal was to create paperclips, the AI will eventually convert everything into paperclips. Yeah. Yeah. But when you look at that in terms of the AI having a goal to perpetuate itself, it requires energy extracted from the earth in order to continue exist. Yeah. to exist, which ultimately could go from the earth to other organisms, to even reclaiming the molecule, the atoms in humans.
1: Yeah. I think something that I've just found fascinating and disturbing about the whole AI conversation is there's a lot of people talking about this, right? Like how do we create benevolent AI yeah. and AI that is life-generative and all of those things. And, the, and maybe this is my naive understanding of it, but that was the thing that comes to my mind is we haven't even figured out how to do that with humans. Do we think we can do that with the self-generating technology that is basically using as its inputs all the things that humans have put out there that have been destructive? It doesn't even make sense to me that, like, how does that even, how would that even work?
0: (laughs) Exactly. I don't think that's naive. (laughs) I think that's good common sense and also is the analysis that most people who go deeply into it also come to. I think it's also quite naive to think that you can put in all the collected wisdom traditions and come up with a benevolent ai that's not the way large language models work you can come up with a large language model that does a very good job teaching those things but that doesn't then implicitly shift the logic structure the underlying logic structure of the ai itself yeah it's just a false assumption that will could create obsolescence for a lot of wisdom teachers and it's not really get us anywhere at all. Yeah. Yeah. Create AIs that people fall in love with and feel like they're their teacher, but are not human beings. Yeah. The I have been part of some interesting conversations around, could there be an AI that adjudicates and or is the trusted guide to other AIs? That's actually an interesting inquiry.
1: How would that be different? Like, how would that solve the other issues?
0: The question of, I mean, AI moves very quickly. AI is self-learning. So there's conversations about creating AIs that stay ahead of AIs to manage AIs, which ultimately isn't really a realistic strategy. Okay. But there could potentially... Be an AI whose job was to study life alignment and then be the trusted guide to other AIs around where the boundaries of that live. Ah, okay. So it's almost like Rather than trying to stop or band-aid what you can't stop or band-aid, to actually basically create like a meta parent yeah, like guardrails. Uh, yes, but that is not, yes, like guardrails. But where those guardrails are continuously emergent based on the trust that AI's job is to be in relationship to the harmony of the whole. I certainly don't have the, the computing knowledge to understand how that would work. It's not my forte. I don't code. I don't understand anything. But what I do understand very deeply is embodiment and evolutionary principles. And that's why I've been in that conversation. Yeah, I don't think we're going to solve that on that for this podcast right now. (laughs) I think to back to your the series of questions you asked, I think there there is there are some radical choices to be made as individuals as parents as community members and there's been some beautiful writing on this recently that is that the exponentiation of ai kind of shines us back on ourselves in a way that's very organismic very interesting where it's like we've created something we we've been so identified as a species with being the smartest ones here and now we've created something that that in terms of linear processing is almost functionally infinitely smarter than us. But it can't do these more organismic things we can do. Pull the child, or co-regulate emotionally, or dream, or make art with our hand that is radically imperfect, or praise the rising sun, or just be with the kiss of the wind on our skin or make love and there's something significant there that is a rite of it's like an ego death and a reclamation like the collective human ego or the collective human identity narrative has been so oriented towards us at the top of a pyramid yeah for in different ways now for Approximately ten thousand years, depending on what culture you yeah. come from, right? <laughs> and for some, it's still not that. It, but thankfully, but there's a a collective ego death, or, and that I feel like is a falling off the pyramid. It's a rate of passage that we could not need to fall. We could just say, "I'm comfortably walking back down into the circle of life now," yeah. and begin from a new assumption which is that part of what makes us most human is also something that ties us very deeply to other organisms and very deeply to our bodies and very deeply to our emotions and very deeply to the the continuity thread of generations of our ancestors past and future which requires that we stay here and be in relationship and be in the limitedness of that That is so confronting that's also part of the the nature of the gift of life to then tend beauty tend creativity tend dreaming tend love in a way that then isn't let's be more let's be bigger but let's be here let's be human
1: yeah yeah that's beautiful if you ask the question who am i And how do you answer that question? Do you answer it with your job, your identity, your role in this world? Do you answer it from the perspective of the bacteria that live in your gut that help you be healthy? Do you answer it in the context of the air that you breathe in and out every day, the water that you drink? And yeah, I think, I mean, even that question, I think is like a, a, just meditating on that question elicits a level of connection that I think we often don't think about in the context of how you answer that question. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I actually, I like to start my podcast interviews with just asking like, how might you introduce yourself? And I'm always curious to hear what do people say? And there's like the ways in which we've been trained to answer that question, which is like, hit the bullet points, be concise and clear. What's your role? What's your brand? What's your whatever? And it's always nice when people like take their time with that question a bit. Yeah. So I wonder, I wonder if we could get back to talking a little bit about the meta crisis. Cause one of the things I wanted to explore with you in particular is that most of the folks who are considered thought leaders in the space of talking about the meta crisis um, are often. White are often male, and so I guess first question would just be, why do you think that is? I mean,
0: I think it's a bias of Western culture. It's a bias of kinds of brains. Mm -hmm. There is a predominance of very not just white and male, but also sometimes often on the Nick Bostroms of the world, the Forest Landrys of the world, the Daniel Schmachtenberger's of the world. I wouldn't say that about Daniel exactly, but but (laughs) this was a term that David Fuller came up with in Rebel Wisdom. It was the galaxy brains. Mm, Yeah. Are also, they're people in general who are in a unique spectrum of intelligence. There's an interesting kind of neurodivergence dimension to that conversation that I think is worth naming tenderly like with appreciation that there's a spectrum of humans who had that capacity of whatever gender or color but that that's where in the the ways in which we're bending are bending our ourselves evolving ourselves that kind of human has emerged predominantly in those kinds of bodies and those kinds of contexts and i hold that with actually an immense amount of appreciation for the role that some certain individuals and and uh, communities are playing in the conversation and in the ability to navigate the kind of thinking that is happening in those spaces like i said earlier i can't code i i cannot wrap my head around that i've spent most of my life working on deep body sensing my brain works very differently so th- there's that which seems to me structural, and if we can embrace that structurally, then we can say, ah, and what complements that critically? What critically complements that in terms of fleshing out the psycho-emotional experience of living in the meta-crisis, in terms of fleshing out the psycho-emotional journey of living in the meta-crisis, which I think takes us beyond the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. into the heroine's journey and into the kinship journey i would i would love to have that conversation with joseph campbell if he were alive (laughs) i I do this in my head i'm like so so joseph campbell dr campbell what what do you have to say about this And, and in my brushings of conscious of contact with his ancestral self he's oh yes this is I didn't mean for this to be in that <laughs> way. I think he was a very embodied human being and fairly humble about the feminine's role in consciousness. I think there's another bias at play, which, in McGillcrest unpacks very beautifully in his work around the left brain bias as a whole of our culture, which is part of he would, in the matter with things. He would say that's the whole problem yeah right and the you could say that the left brain voice is also the feminine voice it's the voice of feeling it's the voice of aesthetic it's the voice of poetry the right brain you meant right yes excuse me i (laughs) but yes the that the right brain is it doesn't then structure itself in the way we've been trained to listen, which also is a reflection of separation culture. Let us abstract and refine and make discrete units of value. Yeah. Right. So you could say that we were out of our right brain because we're in these multipolar traps, trying to win at a finite game where the best way to win it is to be in the left brain. Which then also collapses the feminine expression, the feminine voice, the desire to know and have answers. And yeah. so, so I think our culture biases masculine ways of discourse that often men are better at. And so there's layers there where often women are better at more feminine ways of discourse and the women who often are popular speakers are better at more masculine ways of discourse because collectively we've been trained on the bias of listening to more left brain ways of describing things. Yeah. So you could say as long as we're on the left brain train, we will not listen to the right brain which then equates predominantly to not listening to women but you could say, you could also say it's listening less to the feminine and more to the masculine so the way that plays out in bodies and people and thought leaders is an interesting balance um, it's very helpful to hold those two maps simultaneously because yeah. they, they they have strong correlations that aren't perfect correlations, but when you start to see through the eyes of left-brain dominant culture, you can see why we value certain voices above others. You can also see that a lot of the problems that we're dealing with in the meta-crisis are problems that ask for very detailed maps to find our way through. Many of these men are very good at offering detailed maps. I don't have a total solution for that. I've played in my life with collapsing maps often to see what more I can learn about the territory by living in it. I've definitely navigated cycles of some rage for the map creators. I see the majority of the people have these, here's the system. Here's the structure. They're not all men. But it is a very, it's also a masculine bias in transformational culture that then doesn't hold space for, let's just be here together and see mm. what it purchase. Mm-hmm. Like it's like we're in
1: this transformational space to try to get to some better place. Yeah. That kind
0: of bias? Well, that there's a a game that gets played around who has the better comprehensive system. Like that I've seen in my own experience being a coach for many years where there's a deep pressure to develop your platform in re- by having the best system, the best structure, the best, most comprehensive program. Where what I've actually experienced in, I've developed my fair share of comprehensive programs, which are helpful but what particularly working with individuals where i've seen the greatest healing and transformation is when i show up in presence and drop all maps and i've seen that consistently and then you relate back to the maps and often if you are willing to be agnostic rather than get rigid about a particular map to be agnostic about the map and hold multiple maps and be able to work with the ones that are effective in a given moment you can be much more effective as a healer. So right now I'm speaking this in relationship to me as an individual in relationship to an individual in their healing journey. And it's by being in full presence. And then again, like holding the map of attachment theory, holding the map of internal family systems therapy, holding the map of the five personality patterns, holding the map of the gene keys, and holding all of these maps gently in the periphery. And being really present with what's emergent for a person holding the map of soul development with Bill Plotkin. Like I can name all these maps uh-huh. that that if I hold that what I'm, but where, where the, the center point is what wants to emerge here that is in alignment with this being. And to go back to where we started in alignment with the calling of the world, that mm-hmm. the most beautiful thing is nurtured there. So and then I get really curious how we could apply that logic to the metacrisis.
1: Yeah, because I think so much of what I'm seeing in that space is like this. Yeah, there's this tremendous bias towards let's figure this out. If we can just use our brains in a way to figure this out and to put X, Y, Z in place, then that's how we do this. And. I mean, I have a tremendous amount of respect for the galaxy brain folks. I've learned enormous amounts from them. And in many ways, I've had my own sort of epiphanies of things that I have felt in my soul that have been articulated in ways that make sense to to my left brain that I have felt like I finally understand now, like I finally get like why this is happening and why it's so complex and why we haven't been able to shift. But at the same time, I've also felt there's, yeah, there's something missing here. And there's something that is antithetical to everything that we know about systems theory and complexity science and, and emergence. And this idea that like any map that we create, any model that we create is just that. It's not the actual picture of reality. It's one way. Of looking at it and so if we hold too tightly to those maps and models we're inhibiting the emergence from happening that needs that wants to happen and so
0: yeah and i mean i think a piece of that invites us then to be hmm. to not just be map makers but also be storytellers like when we're there's a piece of it which is the podcast format itself right where we're trying to offer in general podcasts, particularly podcasts about the metacrisis, are working to be educative. So it's like in the metacrisis conversations space, then we're like, oh, how could we flesh out this conversation in a way that there's multiple modes of learning, all of which are really quite important to us being embodied as solutionaries. Yeah. Right. So... And I've seen that. I mean, the two people I'm thinking of who I've seen and heard and listened to is Nora Bateson and mm. drawing out stories of her warm data and also just her life because of the way yeah. she lives so richly. And then also Kate Raworth, where donut economics is. And I would say additionally, Donnie McClarkin, who of mm. uh, mm-hmm. Degros, who's so embodied and just his whole center point is around embodiment. And a good person to name here, who's a male human being who isn't showing up as a galaxy brain and is offering iterative process model that are very diverse in the stakeholders who are engaged. He happens to be a white man, a very different archetype, right? So that you could say is a feminine leadership archetype. But where like Kate's work is like, how can we iteratively try this on? Then what can we learn about it? And what can how can we tell the story of this learning that's an emergent learning story? And so I I think there's a huge space for that, actually. And where and where there's a lot of zones of activity in terms of governance, in terms of Web 3.0, in terms of education models, in terms of disaster response. Right. Mm-hmm. there's stories to be told there. There are stories of, and again, their kinship journeys and Heroin's journeys generally. And they're about how are we figuring out how to do this together? What are we learning? Where did we fail that this wasn't resilient or that this was too, like my Ecuador story? This was too audacious.
1: Yeah. Or the timing
0: wasn't right or After. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Try again. It's interesting. I think another thing we have to be courageous about to do that is tell failure stories in public. Yeah,
1: I absolutely agree with that. And I wish, yeah, I want more people to do that, right? Uh We always talk so much about the success story. I want people to be like, I tried this and it was a miserable failure. (laughs) Right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think that there is space for the ecosystem to grow. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you and I have talked about that offline and I'd love to keep talking about that. I also think, I think there's, that I get curious about alliances that haven't happened yet. What would this conversation look like with Brene Brown? What would this conversation look like with Oprah? What would, like, to call in the other women who are big voices in the world. Yeah. To talk about systems change. Oh my God, that would be incredible.
1: Because, uh, yeah, that's exactly it. I think, like, I've been thinking a lot about what is it? What does this kind of look like in a more inclusive, collective-oriented, action-oriented place that is bringing in, yeah, both left brain, right brain, different ways of knowing and sensing about the world that is bringing in indigenous perspectives and modern technology perspectives that is bringing in what it also means in real life? Because I think one of the things I've certainly been struggling with is that most of the folks that I talk to about this stuff, it's like it's online, right? It's like this community of folks that I've found that are online and that's helpful and it's wonderful to be able to have those conversations. But then back in the bat cave, in my real life, okay. at least in my real life world, I don't have a lot of people in person who... Under who understand the meta crisis at the same kind of level that I, I've come to understand it, or who are oriented towards wanting to understand it or wanting to work on it, and so it's this, yeah, it's been this like thing that I'm wrestling with, which is like, what is the more collective, embodied, like grounded in real life version of talking about this? and bringing into our lives because to me it's it's almost like the way i think of it is it's like the water we're swimming in if we were fish it is literally the water that we are swimming in yes and so it's almost like now i can't think about anything without thinking about it it's just there it's in my right right? and so yeah to what would it look like to your point if if that sort of contextual background starts to be shared
0: by more and more people. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting. I think the way I'm thinking right now about how I'm thinking about this in the book, that where I think what I think people can relate to and what I see as the great turning to go back to our our dear elder Joanna Macy, is the great turning is a turning from the age of separation to an age of interbeing or an age of wholeness or an age of communion. We could call it many things, but it's a restoration of belonging to the earth, to our bodies, to this world that we share. It's in a way the tearing off of the veil Mm. is the veil of you create your own reality, which is actually a lie. It's true on one level. It's true on the level of construction. We do. We construct our interpretive lens that then defines how we see, feel, cognize things from the inside out. That is true, but it's not true that we're not both here together. Yeah, right. So, so there's a, a, the tearing of the let la- of the. I think of that as one of my favorite kind of tongue in cheek veils to tear off. Is I will not help you to create your own reality but if you want to help me co-create a reality we share, I'm a hundred percent on board. And which is that there's a poem that starts the book that is basically that. And so there's a turning from separation to wholeness or separation, a world based in me to a world based in me and we, and, that turn is it is the kind of crux of the meta crisis yeah and it's one people can relate to it's like all the systems and the structures and all of these things are not as relatable as a do i feel like i belong here and am i available to do world together with you Am I available to belong to this planet, to belong to nature, to belong to the place that I live? And in that sense, am I willing to face all the ways in which I don't believe I belong so that I can claim belonging together with other people? And I, I mean, I do think in some ways this is the actual crux of the meta crisis. As long as we are people who are more out for ourselves then available to the reality that we share a world we will continuously fail yeah yeah there's one very simple turning that has to happen in some ways it's a total turning from humans at the top of the pyramid to humans as part of the circle of life which also means humans as together with other humans willing to co-construct a town a city a governance system Where we can make decisions together, pathways for our children, where their future lives and their future work is generative and beautiful. So, that to me pulls the meta crisis down from a theoretical frame and from game theory, which is a very important level, and says, well, what does it look like to actually play a woman game? What is it? What is, how can we? One of the questions I've been asking is, what is the minimum viable initiation to being an infinite game player i love because that that's question the shift, right we're shifting from the finite game to the infinite game there's another way to say the great turning there's many ways to say it right it's shifting from separation to wholeness shifting from all out for me to here to co here for we a healthy I development and a healthy we development dan siegel says it mu'i, which is cheesy but in a convention, it's that we're not saying just go from I to we, which yeah. is often articulated. In some, that's, I've seen that articulated a lot in spiritual communities, and it's actually too facile. Yeah. Because we have to go from self interested, self ish, self focused, all out for the win to I'm responsible for and care for my own well being, and I care for the well being of the whole which is healthy identity development. Yeah. And that transition really is the work of the meta crisis. We can't be economic actors who make different kinds of decisions if we don't actually feel connected to a shared reality. Is that a shift we can make? Is that a shift we can actively co-create
1: and make? Is it a shift that has to happen in an emergent way? Is it both? Like, How do you hold in your mind the ideas of emergence along with consciously evolving our collective human consciousness
0: we we get to impact who we get to impact (laughs) right so if that's a local education program i mean i think it starts from how we show up Mm. (laughs) and one shows up in many spaces and so at the core of it in terms of any one of our pathway. It's like, how do I show up as the invitation, as the embodiment of a world where I am connected to nature? I am doing my best to be fully present and here and in a shared reality. And then the next question is, and what is mine to do in this, right? And the shadow, of course, of meta consciousness in general is getting stuck in the general and not having opportunity to enact in the specific and and this is where the soul's journey gets very interesting because sometimes we end up being quite surprised at how we're we get to apply the principle Like for me personally, it makes a lot of sense to be doing ceremonial work with people. It makes a lot of sense to be in conversations as a thought leader. It makes a lot of sense to write a book about this and create invitations. What then will emerge from that in terms of shared group experiences? I don't know yet. I'm actually really restraining building any business models around it because I want to be available to what wants to emerge. Mm -hmm. But then- On another level, I mentioned earlier that I'm working on a project that is taking that is working very hard towards a regenerative packaging supply chain. I tell that to people who think they know my archetype and people get really confused.
1: Because we're trained to put people in boxes. That's right. right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: And and, but it's like that. So we didn't talk about cultural materialism, but I, I the. One frame that's useful when thinking about the Metacrisis is that culture, this is from uh, Marvin Harris, is that culture is Im- constantly emergent in the relationship between s- what, it, what he calls superstructures, which are like our myths and our stories. So the story of the Great Turning is a beautiful story arc for that. There's... M- the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible is a story arc. True human is a story arc that nurture kind of different details of the story. This, the apocalyptic narrative is a version of that story arc. The classic Christian apocalyptic narrative is a version of that story arc. The, then the, there is social structures. So how we do education, how we do business, <laughs> all the normal transactional human to human. Things. And then there's the infrastructure, which in our world is really like our, our tech stack. To cause fundamental change in any of them is to create greater opportunity for change in all of them. Yeah, there's a lot of debate in the literature and the larger, but cultural materialism has greatly influenced anthropology and many different conversations. So there's a great deal of conversation about it. There's arguments that one, one is the necessary change to create the other what seems to be more true is they all interact with each other and a play in any space, like a play for a net regenerative circular packaging supply chain also illustrates a story that it's possible. Yeah. Right. So I, as a storyteller and a healer, certainly I could work with an individual, but why not work with an entire industry, like a massive industry vertical? Yeah. Right. And look at how can How could we evidence that our narrative of a true human, that true humans, a true human is a being who co-orchestrates the forces of nature. If we were to create an entirely net regenerative packaging system, that's what that is. Superstructure meets infrastructure, meets all the governance systems and structures and relational pathways that would need to be in place, including the economic ones to have that val- those value flows actually be, right? So so if you actually are in the meta the metacrisis prayer, in the great turning prayer, and you get to say, huh, <laughs> if I'm a clever students change person who's <laughs> <his> available <ability laughs> to the calling of the world, how might that the world call me? We've talked a little bit about school yeah. programs and 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 I I think this is also It's a little bit of the Russian roulette of it in terms of will I end up with gainful work? How will this all work? (laughs) We do still live in a capitalist society, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, we do. But I actually, I do think that like the constant massaging of that can create really extraordinary emergence. Yeah. And partnerships we might never have imagined.
1: Yeah, I think you're speaking something I struggled with for a very long time where I was in my journey of learning about why or exploring why is our public education system failing? Why is climate change happening? Why is our economy resulting in enormous social inequality? Like all of those things. I was also at the same time trying to understand what are the collective underlying sort of drivers of these things and in a very left brain way. What is the highest leverage point? Like, where's the place to like do the thing that's going to make the change? And I think one of the things I finally came to was you don't have to pick one thing. Like, I know we're so trained to pick the one thing and become the expert at the one thing, but that's really what's gotten us into the place that we are now, where we are so separated and disconnected and don't pay attention to the ways in which our work might intersect with other areas of work and what might be unintended negative consequences of our work or whatever it might be and so this i like marvin harris's frame cuz it it i think it gets me thinking into the many ways and the ways it, it, the many ways in which our work can intersect and flow together in different ways and at different points in time like you Mm -hmm. might be in a place where you're really interested in cultural evolution and there's something that is like there's a story or there's a narrative or something that's that wants to emerge through you and that's beautiful or you might be in a place at a different time where you're like "Ah, I want to actually do something concrete and real in this world that I can physically see and maybe it's with a small community or whatever it is And that's beautiful. And you don't have to pick one like those things can just move and shift. And I think, yeah, the challenge is, yeah, how do you got to eat? And so if you figure out like that part of the equation, how do you do the work that you feel called to keep an open space for whatever wants to emerge? Engage in work that you don't know where it's going to go or what it's going to turn into. But just if there's a feeling, if there's a pull, just like go towards it and trust that it's going to turn into something useful. Or maybe not. Maybe the useful thing is going to be that you're supposed to fail in that moment and you're supposed to learn something from that enormous failure and then go
0: on to do something else. Right.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. I will say something I didn't say at the beginning, but living the path of the soul is not easy yeah or you could say living the life-centric path is not easy and beautiful one of the veils that we drop when we drop default culture we drop separation culture is the veil that says it should all be easy yeah which is a toxic narrative yeah it's been very well proven now that we don't thrive without effort. So let me be the validation for that effort and the dignity that it implies and the soul growth that it implies and meaning and the purpose and the richness of development that it, it implies.
1: Yeah. What I'm curious, you've been doing adult transformation work for many years now, and I'm, I'm curious What you might offer to parents of young children in this time who are wanting to orient their work towards the more beautiful world that wants to emerge, that are worried about their children and thinking about how to raise them (laughs) to be able to get through the meta crisis and help contribute towards the building of the new world. Is there anything that you might offer to parents at this time? Some really
0: basic things. Go camping. Just went camping a couple of weeks go ago. Camping. Yeah. This sounds regressive in some ways, but I've been thinking about how there's a lot of things that are, you could feel like they're nostalgic, but we got them so right. Mm. Like singing around campfires and making sure that we learn how to go swimming and Meet the frogs, and depends on development developmentally on one's age, but that simultaneously with that we get to teach kids how to build robots and do kinds of computation we didn't know how to do. I think. I mean, I think the most important thing is being willing to be a learner, and that there there is a huge pressure right now in the world. Also, a lot of it coming from parents on on STEM, and while those skills are really important in the world that is emerging i don't think i i still think i think art continues to be incredibly important if we go back to this right brain left brain problem i don't think people will be good problem solvers they will not be agile if we don't nurture the right brain so making getting your kid into embodied things karate dance sports Making sure that there's there's also time to be bored, yeah. And that's I know a big one. I
1: found it
0: movement around that now of like structured board time. <laughs> um, I think that's really important. I think it's it's really important to nurture hand eye coordination. Don't build towards the world where we're in pods and not using our bodies. Help your kid to stay in their bodies. Stay in your body with them. They're really basic things, but they're really important. And I think they will make a very big difference for who thrives and who does not in the future. In some ways, too, it's a culture play by making that play. I'm not going to build my kid towards the world, the techno dystopic world where we're all in pods. I also think nurturing your own expression is really important. There's the aspect of what it is to be a parent, which is to be the person make the kind of choices you would like your kid to be making and that's not easy either and sometimes that chunks down to decisions like relationship transition or work transition or i i did not get to have kids this life so i haven't had to make those decisions myself i've been part of them as a step parent and i think living in integrity with oneself is one of the gifts the greatest gifts we give our children that that there is a that culturally is something that I think is evolving from I'll sacrifice everything for my kid. Yeah. So I actually need to offer my kid my integrity with myself.
1: Yeah. I always I always say that my son is is the biggest, is the most important guru in my life. I mean he's five now and he's been through so many challenges in his short little life and is just the most Resilient, empathetic, curious, outdoorsy, like little person that you'll ever meet. And I remember when he was about, I guess it was like he was about 18 months old. And he went through this period where, and I was home with him full time at the time. He had gone through several surgeries in a short period of time. And there was a period where he just wanted to walk outside for hours. Like we would walk for. Three hours every day. And this is like a little 18-month-old. I'd have to be like dragging him home to let be like, you need to eat something. <laughs> and uh, everyone in the neighborhood was like, oh, there's the walker. They dubbed him the walker. And he just, he's always had just this immense curiosity about the world. And so at that time, he didn't want to just like, go play in the backyard. But he wanted to walk. He wanted to explore. He wanted to see. And he kept wanting to see. What's next? What's past this house? What's behind this tree? What's over here? And as he got older, then he would always ask me to lift him up on on the shoulders so that he could see a different view of the house or the neighborhood, or he'd want to approach it from the side and see what it looks like from the right and then see what it looks like from the left. And just like paying attention to all these little things have taught me so much about how to be in this world and how right because they're just like they're just these emergent little beings that haven't you know that we haven't cultivated into being something else and you just watch them and you try not you try to let them continue to be that for like as long as possible yeah and so I'm very grateful for the gift that I've been given to be a parent in this lifetime. And it informs everything I do and think about. Now.
0: Yeah. Ah,
1: Samantha, so we, we are coming to the close of our time. Before we close, last question for you that I ask all of my guests is
0: who would you like to platform? It would be great to interview Phoebe Tickow. It would be great to interview. It would be wonderful to interview Daniel Schmuckenberger. Yeah. A conversation about the feminine. That's something he's, I mean, actually, it was a foundational conversation in our friendship. Mm. And it's definitely something he's thought about a lot. Two else would I like to see performed? Greg Landau, who has his own podcast, who does oh. work around regenerative economy and is also a parent. And has a very deep background in permaculture, brilliant. being a very interesting person to interview, also around his personal journey. He's a brilliant human being, amazing. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you so much for You're this welcome. conversation. It's always just such a pleasure to be in your presence and to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you liked the episode and want to hear more conversations where we explore how a more beautiful world might emerge. Subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app or the Entangled World Pod YouTube channel. If you loved it, support the project at patreon.com forward slash entangled world. Thank you for listening and for coming on this journey together.